Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. The rogue Starstone has been deactivated. McAllen Orsall, accompanied by Geoffrey Tully, Anton and Harlequin, piloted a stolen submarine to find the wreckage of the High Tenshi deep in the Mariana Trench. Six years ago, the High Tenshi was built by Nankatsu Industries for the sole purpose of delivering a Starstone to the underwater city of Leviathan. But something went mysteriously wrong with the mission, and the Starstone activated prematurely, causing the destruction of the vessel. For six years, the Starstone sat under five miles of ocean, hidden deep within an underwater cavern, transmitting a perverted signal that killed any immortal that came into contact with it. But McAllen and her team sought to silence the Starstone that had killed hundreds of immortals. As McAllen communed with the rogue Starstone, forcing it to revert to an inert state, a tiny bit of the deadly signal leaked out, rendering Anton unconscious and slipping away. McAllen raced to get her dying companion back to Guardian One, but when she returned to the open ocean, she saw Guardian One, her stolen submarine along with Tully and Harlequin, explode in front of her eyes. And now, Chapter 21, Enter Leviathan. Oh my God, Tully, Tully, Harlequin, oh Jesus, no, 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 I can't, I just can't. Can't what? I don't like to hear that kind of loser talk. Shit, Tully, where are you? Well, we can certainly see where your loyalties reside. I'm perfectly fine, my dear. No need to alarm yourself. Harlequin, Tully, where are you guys? What happened to Guardian One? Well, I think you kind of saw it. Where are you guys? I suggest you carefully look down the trench. McAllen inched her mech closer to the edge of the crater which overlooked the deepest point on Earth. She was still carrying Anton in her arms, so she was careful not to get too close to the edge. But as she peered over, she saw two other mechs 50 feet below her, holding on to the trench walls like gargantuan insects. When we lost contact with you and Anton after you guys entered that tunnel, we went back down to the bottom deck of Guardian 1 to load up another mech to go looking for you. We mistakenly left the cockpit controls unattended while Guardian 2 snuck up on us. Ironically, the enemy ship actually delayed its attack because it couldn't understand why we were just hovering in a stationary position. <laughs> its AI thought it was some sort of trap. It gave Harlequin and I just enough time to get into the mechs before Guardian 2 fired its torpedoes at us. I must admit, that was a small stroke of genius on the part of Mr. Tully. I was going to try to race back to the cockpit and try to make a run for it, but he convinced me that we had just enough time to get into the mechs and load them into the launch tubes. When the ship was detonated, we simply, what was it you called it? Played possum. Kept the mechs in their fetal position and then just drifted down with the rest of the debris. Guys, Anton is unconscious. His vital signs are weak. He's dying. We've got to get him out of here. McAllen, what happened inside the cavern? 
McCallum retold the story of her and Anton shutting down the Starstone and how he fell unconscious right after. Do so you think that he caught a little bit of the signal before you were able to completely shut down the Starstone? I don't know. He just... You said you saw blood leaking from his mouth. Yes. That means he's in the last stage. Last stage of what? His life. He doesn't have much time. We've got to get into a medical facility. They've got to induce a very special kind of coma. His brain is being flooded right now, and we've got to get it to shut down before it overloads and hemorrhages. What do we do? We've got to get back to the surface. These mechs have some propulsion. We can use it to get ourselves back to the surface, and from there, we can use some sort of flare or something to flag down a boat that can pick us up. McAllen, we're at 29,000 feet. It'll take us hours to get to the surface. He's not going to last hours. And then the chances of flagging down a boat, especially if it's dark out, we won't. Then what's the answer, Tully, huh? Just let him die down here while we watch, while we sit around and do nothing? Is that how it's supposed to work? No. Then we don't stop fighting until we get him to a hospital. McAllen, I'm just saying that there's still a lot of people trying to find us. And when they do find us, they're gonna kill Harlequin and I and probably do worse to you. I want to save Anton, I really do. Anybody who protects you with their life is a friend in my book. But Anton wouldn't want us to take a careless risk on what's probably a suicide. Suicide? McAllen, there's not a hospital within 500 miles of us. He's not going to make it. Don't even fucking say that. Forgive me, but I just remembered something. I do just happen to know of a hospital that is actually quite close to us. What? What are you talking about? A hospital near us? Harlequin, have you lost your fuck? I'm talking about Leviathan. What? Oh my god, are you bent? Are you seriously suggesting we go deeper? No way. Those people are crazy. You said so yourself. And on top of that, they want to kill McAllen. I don't think they're going to hurt McAllen. And why exactly do you think that? For two reasons. One, because she's innocent. She hasn't harmed anyone. And what's your second reason? Let's just say I believe I still have a little pull in our underwater fortress. I don't care how much pull you have. Anton is part of the rebellion. You said they killed thousands when they defected. Didn't Evangeline try to have him killed back on the surface? Anton is another matter. He is a criminal and a traitor in the eyes of Leviathan, but I don't believe Evangeline will kill him either. Why not? Because she doesn't always kill her enemies. What are you talking about? Didn't she- Look, I don't have time to give you a history lesson. Anton's time is running out and so is my patience. You have a choice. Either you want me to take you to Leviathan and we take our chances, or we all just jet back to the surface and go our separate ways. The choice is yours, but I suggest you make it quickly. Tully? Look, I don't think anything good is going to come out of knocking on the door of the person that everyone's been calling a mad woman, but I'm sticking with you no matter what you decide. It's Anton's only chance, Tully. Do you really think they'll try to save him in Leviathan, Harlequin? I don't know, but there's a chance. Then I say we do it. Mr. Tully? Where McAllen goes, I go. Ah, how touching. McAllen, are you comfortable using your pulse jet? Yeah, I think so. Good, because you'll need them. We've got a long drop, a lot of weight, and we'll need to slow ourselves down quickly. Wait, that's the plan? We just jump off this cliff? A trench goes down another 6,000 feet. These mechs must weigh about two or three tons. We'll kill ourselves. Harlequin maneuvered his mech beside McAllen and shouldered some of the weight of Anton's dormant mech. What's the matter, Mr. Tully? Afraid of heights? Tully peered over the edge of the crater to see the sheer rock face of the trench disappear into the blue abyss. No. I'm afraid of the dark. The four mechs walked to the lip of the crater that had been blasted vertically into the face of the trench. Not a word was said, not a gesture offered. The four of them simply looked down over the ledge that disappeared into darkness. Each one knew that it was time to finally face what had been haunting them. 
to confront Leviathan lying somewhere down there in the pitch black sea. They leaned forward and fell. The four mechs raced downwards into the abyss. With nothing to give her mech's feet any purchase, McAllen twisted and tumbled in the invisible current. For a brief second, her mech twisted backwards, and McAllen found herself looking up the trench wall at the silhouette of the crater disappearing rapidly from view. As she fell, she clutched Anton's limp mech across her chest like a protective mother holding her child. You're not going to die, Anton. I'm not going to let you. Tully and Harlequin's mechs flitted in and out of the darkness beside her, visible, then invisible again. Tully, Tully, are you with me? I am. I'm, I'm just a little... I'm just getting disoriented, which is great. The mechs are simply adjusting to the depth. We just passed 30,000 feet. Jesus. But the falling mechs had drifted away from the trench wall and now were tumbling with no reference point, nothing to anchor them to reality. The white marine snow that permeated everything seemed to rush by faster. McAllen gripped Anton tighter. Harlequin, how do we slow down? Use the pulse jets in the feet of your mech. Yeah, but which way? I'm afraid you'll have to figure it out for yourself. McAllen, try to look at any bubbles you can see. All air bubbles rise upwards, so try to use that to orient yourself. 32,000. What if I'm using the jet to race down faster instead of slowing down? Then you'll just crash into the ocean floor that much faster and everyone will die. Fuck you, Harlequin. Yeah, that's it. Move your mech into the position I'm in. Look at me. I'm facing upwards and that'll cushion us when we hit bottom. I'm trying. Try harder because we've almost reached 34,000 feet. I can't even get my head around that. I suggest activating your pulse jets now. The ocean floor is approaching and you'll want to slow down as much as possible. Harlequin and Tully's mechs began to slow their rate of descent, but McCallum raced past the two of them as her mass was much greater than her companions because she was also carrying Anton's mech. Tully flicked off his pulse jets and rolled into a tuck position facing directly downward. He then reactivated his jets and raced down even faster, grabbing the right arm of McAllen's mech as soon as she came back into view. Ugh, heroic. Harlequin mimicked Tully's maneuver and grabbed McAllen's left arm while racing downwards. Okay, now the three of us together. Everybody use their pulse jets at the count of three. McAllen, you want to hold on to Anton as tight as you can. One, two, three. Anton's mech suddenly felt three times as heavy in McAllen's arms, but she managed to keep a hold of him. The trench wall was coming back into view off to the side, and McAllen could see the three of them had accumulated a fair amount of speed during the course of their descent. I can see the ocean floor. It's just a couple more yards. Here it comes. Full power. McAllen was expecting her knees to buckle or to be tossed to the side on impact. What surprised her was that the impact was minimal. Man, these mechs are strong. I didn't even feel the landing with these pulse jets at full blast. Wait, what the... McAllen's vision started to get cloudy. Silt was rising over the level of her view screen. The bottom that she had expected to be hard and gravelly was in reality ethereal sludge that McAllen was now sinking rapidly in. She desperately wanted to use her arms, but she didn't risk letting go of Anton. Tully, I'm sinking. I'm stuck too, I can't look at you two lost little kittens. I swear you're no better than Anton. What exact part of full power eluded your comprehension? Harlequin had managed not to immerse himself in the abyssal soup that lay at the bottom of the trench. Instead, he hovered over it and now was reaching down to hoist both McAllen and Tully out of the murk in which they were sinking. There's firmer ground to the west along the trench wall. Once we reach the wall, Leviathan will be just over a mile north. Mr. Tully, I'd like you to be beside me as we approach Leviathan. McAllen, I'd prefer it if you walked behind us. Okay, but why? Just because. The three mechs trudged north, following the trench wall for almost 20 minutes. McAllen still carried Anton's lifeless mech in her arms. 
They walked in silence as each of them considered what lay ahead of them. For Harlequin, it would be a dangerous homecoming. For Tully, it would mean being surrounded and at the whim of hundreds of immortals, a tight-knit community which he was decidedly not a part of. And for McAllen, it was a realization of her destiny and the opportunity to meet her maker. Evangeline, queen of all immortals, my progenitor, my real mother, what will you think of me? It's just beyond the outcropping ahead. The three mechs reached the outcropping of rock and made a sharp left-hand turn. There, they found a narrow cleft in the trench wall that McAllen would surely have missed in the darkness had Harlequin not directed her. The cleft ended in a cul-de-sac 400 feet inside. In the center of it, a gigantic assembly of unusually shaped boulders seemed piled astonishingly high, higher than McAllen's lights could make out in the darkness. As they approached closer, McAllen began to make out more distinct shapes in the rock, and she even imagined she saw distinct carvings in the stone. Something else glittered in the darkness. A crystal? Some sort of metal? This is it. This is Leviathan. My God. It's a church. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. In front of McAllen stood a gargantuan cathedral, the largest she had ever seen. If McAllen didn't know better, it seemed like the church literally grew organically out of the surrounding rock. In the center, a massive stone steeple soared hundreds of feet from the muddy stone of the trench wall and was adorned with angels and pinnacles. From the bottom of the steeple protruded an ornate nave with flying buttresses and gargoyles that stared malevolently outward. 
Each gargoyle was the size of a small car, keeping with the enormous size of the structure. Even in 20-foot-tall mechs, McAllen, Tully, and Harlequin appeared to be the most diminutive parishioners kneeling in reverence before this otherworldly structure. But the oddest part of the entire church was the colossal stained-glass window that was displayed in the front of the nave. It was far too dim, and McAllen was too far away to discern the scene it depicted, but glimpses of its muted color were evident under the strobe lights of McAllen's mech. Smaller side steeples rambled left and right off the main body and gave the church a sprawling architecture, melding in and out of the trench wall as if it were all connected. At the very front of the nave, two giant foreboding wooden doors stood sentry, with oversized steps leading down from them. Who would enter through these doors? Not even Poseidon himself would be this deep. Who worships here? Harlequin, how can there be a 300-foot-high church 35,000 feet underwater? Evangeline began construction of her fortress almost. 1,000 years ago with the help of the most inspired builders of the time. Think of it. What were the pinnacles of human architecture for the greater part of the last thousand years? Of course, it was churches. Churches and temples and cathedrals. She built a church underwater. I think you'll see she built quite a bit more than that. It's unbelievable. It's just gorgeous. She built the most beautiful building she knew how. As impressive a sight as Leviathan is, I'm afraid we have to move closer. Mr. Tully on my right flank, please. McAllen, I have to ask you you still didn't explain. Because I'm trying to keep you alive. Tully and Harlequin advanced their mechs forward while McAllen approached in the middle, a healthy distance behind them. They all walked forward until Tully and Harlequin reached the giant steps leading up to the cathedral. The church stood hulking over the three of them, giant, lifeless, and dark. Stop here. Harlequin paused for a second and allowed the silence of the ocean's deep to fall over them. Neither Harlequin, McAllen, nor Tully moved a muscle or said a word. Suddenly, far above the basilica, a single light illuminated high in the trench rock. Hello, Evangeline. It's Harlequin. I need you to let me in. McAllen held her breath. Was this it? No security codes, no secret channels, nothing to stop Evangeline from firing a torpedo destroying all of them. She suddenly felt extremely vulnerable. For a moment, nothing happened. The enormous church stood there, ancient and brooding, surveying McAllen and considering if she was worthy of entry. A great shock shot through McAllen as the two great doors in the front of the church slowly began to part. Soft light streamed out of the widening space between the two doors, and McAllen had to look away before her eyes could adjust to the intensity. It took almost a minute for the doors to open fully. McAllen maneuvered her mech between Harlequin and Tully, and then the three of them began to walk up the giant steps of the church. Some of the steps were so large that McAllen needed to use her pulse jets to assemble them. She desperately wanted to use her arms, but she was still holding Anton's lifeless mech. What's waiting for us inside these walls? Why is this church so enormous? What do Edeners look like? How can Harlequin just call out to Evangeline? Is she waiting for us inside? Will she kill us? The mechs reached the top of the stairs and walked into the large columned nave that extended at least 100 yards forward. The gothic vaulted ceiling stretched 150 feet into the air and featured alcoves with statues of saints and seraphim. But what struck McAllen was alongside them were depictions of Buddha, Ganesh and Sheba, intertwined with stars of David, crucifixes and ankhas. 
where she was enveloped in the most intense darkness outside. Now light shone through all of the stained glass windows and illuminated the preternatural beauty of the room. My God. Where is that light coming from? Amazing. McAllen expected to see pews alongside her as she walked down the center of the cathedral. On the ground level, she passed more exquisite statues, this time of men and women intertwined together between the massive columns. Questions flooded McAllen's mind. Who had made these statues? How could a church be 35,000 feet underwater? Harlequin, how could keep moving? We're almost there. The mechs continued through the central chamber until they came upon a large raised platform approximately 30 yards long. It wasn't lost on McAllen that this was where the pulpit traditionally stood in most churches. A bit sacrificial, isn't it? Don't be dramatic. The three mechs stood on the large platform, which shuddered as soon as they placed weight on it. It rose suddenly for a quick instant and then descended down below the level of the chapel like a massive industrial elevator. The ceiling above them closed shut and they plunged into darkness once again. McAllen instinctively reactivated the next external lights, but as she did, the floor came to a stop and all of the water surrounding her swiftly left the chamber. Airlock. Quiet. Listen to me very closely. From here on out, you say nothing. You do nothing. You let me talk and don't do anything without my explicit permission. Are we clear? Harlequin, how can we... If you want Anton to live, you'll shut the hell up right now and do as you're told. Now silence. McAllen looked over at Tully and could see his mech turn slightly towards her. Both of their mechs were dripping with icy seawater. The wall directly in front of them opened outwards and down, leading into what McAllen could only describe as a large hangar bay, but was devoid of any craft other than their own. In fact, the massive room was utterly deserted, save for two lone figures standing at the far end. One was a man wearing a white hooded cloak that obscured his features. Next to him stood a tall, slender woman with beautiful auburn hair. McAllen stared at the two figures for a moment and then saw Harlequin kneel his mech to the floor and exit through the back coat. McAllen and Tully followed suit. Once out, McAllen quickly ran to the back of Anton's mech and extracted him, taking extra care to lay him down gently behind his mech. Harlequin strode over to the pair at the far end of the room. The woman walked forward to meet him. Hello, Evangeline. Harlequin, you never cease to amaze me. I promise it's not my intention. Harlequin and Evangeline stood mere inches from each other, never allowing their gazes to wander. Harlequin turned the palms of his hand towards her, and Evangeline slipped her hands into his. They both bowed their heads forward, so that their foreheads were now touching. They stood utterly still, holding each other, and McAllen could see their chests rise and fall together. Mm. A long time. It has. Forgive me, my love, but I've become rather accustomed to you working alone. It's not like you to bring friends. Forgive my manners. The shaggy-looking gentleman to the right is Mr. Geoffrey Tully, captain of a vessel called the Hail Mary. Pleased to meet you, um, your highness. But Evangeline had no interest in Geoffrey Tully. She left Harlequin's delicate embrace to turn and stare at McCallum with flashing green eyes. And this, Evangeline, is Miss McCallum Orsall. Goddess... Evangeline took five long, slow steps to bring herself in front of McAllen. Her red hair, while longer, was precisely the same color as McAllen's. Her head tilted slightly in astonishment. McAllen couldn't help but stare at her in amazement. She was looking at herself. Slightly older, perhaps, maybe five or ten years at most, but it was a clear window into her own soul. Hello, Evangeline. 
My name is McAllen. Evangeline broke into a large, warm smile and took McAllen's hand in hers. Hello, McAllen. Welcome to Leviathan. In addition to welcoming her, you might want to thank her. It was McAllen that deactivated the missing star stone that was causing the damn signal that was killing all of us. Evangeline stood still in her tracks, considering this. Simply astonishing. McAllen, you know, I've heard of you. I wanted to meet you, but you were kept so well hidden. Pity. And you... you really communed with the Starstone. I... I did. Does that mean you want to kill me? I beg your pardon. They told me you'd see me as a threat. They said you'd kill me if you could. Who are they? McAllen stood in silence. Goddess above, McAllen. What did they tell you about me? They said that the signal might have been your doing. That you want to eliminate all the immortals that liberated themselves from you. Liberate? My dear, please allow for the fact that you have been instilled with a very selective sense of history. I give you my word as a Valkyrie that I had nothing to do with causing the signal that was killing all of us. I am not, despite what you have been told, a killer. I hope you'll give me the opportunity to show you that. I'll let you show me now. McCallum. Please help my friend Anton. I know you know who he is. He's going to die if you don't help him. He was trying to stop- Anton. Evangeline turned sharply to Harlequin. Anton, you brought Anton here. That fucking traitor. How dare you, Harlequin? How fucking dare you? <coughs> Evangeline, please. If you're not what they told me, if you really are different, then please. Please help Anton. Evangeline stared at McAllen and then closed her eyes tightly. I don't blame you for any of this, McAllen. But you, Harlequin... He was badly hurt in the deactivation of the Starstone. That signal could have meant the end of Leviathan. Please. Please. He's going to die. You underestimate my ability to preserve the lives of those around me. <sighs> Benu, alert the medical team. Get them here immediately. Benu stood motionless. Benu. Of course, my lady. Benu walked over to the far wall and spoke into a communications panel. Moments later, six men in white jumpsuits and tunics ran into the hangar and placed Anton on a wheeled stretcher with LCD panels on the side displaying his vital signs. Once secured, they quickly rushed away with him. Don't kill him. What exactly do you mean, don't kill him? Do you have any idea who he is? Do you know how many people he's killed? I find your compassion highly misplaced. Your friend will be tended to, but know this. He is a criminal. He is a murderer. McAllen and Evangeline stood in silence and stared at each other. Benu, please take our two guests to the chambers on the Vanderbilt level. I'll deal with Mr. Harlequin personally. Please follow me. Benu, McAllen, and Tully left the modern hangar bay and were joined by one of Benu's assistants. As soon as they left the bay, they entered a gothic hallway with brick stone floors and antiquated oil paintings on the walls. The hallway turned to the left, and after walking another two minutes, the four of them entered a narrow spiral staircase that led upwards over five stories. This place is wild. Man, I'll bet you Dracula keeps calling you guys asking for his castle back, huh? Huh? <laughs> the four continued walking up the staircase in silence until it emptied them onto a long corridor with over 30 sets of identical wooden doors stretching down its length. Benu turned to his assistant. Please take Mr. Tully to his bedchamber. I'll take care of this girl. The assistant nodded sharply and took Tully by the arm and led him down the hallway. He looked back over his shoulder for an instant at McAllen. 
I guess I'll see you later. Guess so. The pair walked down the hall as Bennu extended his arm forward. I heard Evangeline call you Bennu. That's an unusual name. It wasn't always my name. Does it mean anything? Yes. These are your quarters. Bennu paused in front of a rounded wooden door that displayed a jackal kicking a ball as a door knocker. We've put your companion, the one you call Tully, in one of the chambers on the left. Wait a second. There's like 30 rooms of left, and there's no numbers on these doors. How will I know where he is? Not to worry. We know where you both are. Bennu touched one of the old bricks in the wall beside McAllen. It slid back to reveal a flat screen control panel that accepted his fingerprint to open the door to McAllen's room. She entered the chamber oh my and God. was shocked at what she saw. Oh my God. At the center of the far wall was a four-poster canopy bed, identical to the one at her grandmother's, Amelia Orsall's apartment in New York. Just like the bed she slept in so many nights as a young girl, this one had the same wooden banisters carved from hundreds of tiny ornate faces that screamed out in exclamation. Still just as creepy as the one on Fifth Avenue. Hey, I know I might be pushing my luck, but is turn-down service something that... But he was already gone. She was alone in what would appear to be Rapunzel's bedchamber, in the highest tower of the castle, but far from a prison cell. The room was actually beautiful outside of the heavy brick stone that framed the bedroom. Vibrant, feminine watercolors adorned the walls, but McAllen's eye was immediately drawn to a gilted bronze mirror frame hanging over a delicate mahogany vanity table. As she approached the table, her mouth dropped open in amazement. Brushes? My God, are these beautiful brushes? Two silver and three gold hairbrushes with intricate baroque carvings were lined up neatly on the vanity. Two heavy combs encrusted with rubies and sapphires and adorned with minute mermaids lay beside them. McCallum picked the brushes up in her hands and marveled at the weight. My God, I wonder whose these are. They're so beautiful. She ran her finger through the stiff bristles and was amazed how firm they still were. God, I wish I paid attention in art history. What century are these from? They're so heavy. McCallum sat on the petite Rococo chair in front of the mirror and stared at her reflection as she ran one of the silver combs through her thick scarlet hair. This room, this furniture, these beautiful trappings, they easily evoke the obvious fantasy of being a princess in a forbidden castle. But is the princess a prisoner? Evangeline seemed surprisingly nice. I thought she'd want to kill me. Certainly didn't say anything about being held captive. No bars on the windows. Wait a second. Her eyes raced to a set of crimson velvet curtains that hung on the west wall. Windows? How can there be any windows when we're inside an underwater mountain? That that doesn't make any sense. She quickly pushed the chair aside and ran over to whip back the curtains that covered the wall. Oh, oh, oh my. My God, how can this How oh, What this is? It's impossible. Totally impossible. McAllen looked out her window and saw a beautiful village that stretched almost a mile long. The village sat in what appeared to be a gargantuan cavern that contained dwellings and buildings and platforms carved into its sides. Bridges led back and forth across the great cavern, and numerous ramps and elevators whisked people up and down the countless levels. Many people wore jumpsuits of differing colors, but many others wore clothing of various ages and nationalities. She could now see that her bedroom window was an outcropping in the rear of the greater cathedral structure that they had first entered. Her room stood 300 feet above the floor of Leviathan City. 
Down below her, she could just make out a woman in a tight ivory kimono walking across the cobblestone street to meet a tall man dressed in a frock coat, top hat and bow tie. The man was manipulating a small floating disc that hovered just over his head. Using a small device in his hand, he lowered the disc to eye level and then watched a small hologram arise from the top of the disc. The figurine that materialized on the disc waved at the geisha and she politely waved back as the man in the top hat smiled. Others on the crowded street went about their business as if there was nothing at all unusual about the fact that they were all living and working more than 35,000 feet underwater. Evangeline collected them, all of them, her butterflies, from every era, from every country. She picked them. Each one must have a unique talent, something useful to Evangeline, some reason to be invited to join her hidden menagerie. McAllen struggled to take it all in, to absorb what she was seeing. But the most amazing part of all was the sky. It amazed her because the logical part of McAllen's mind knew that there could be no sky here, not inside of a cavern buried beneath the single deepest point on Earth that was also geometrically the furthest away from any sky. Yet there it was. A warm, dull glow emanated from the top of the cavern, which released a golden, iridescent haze that gently fell down from the ceiling. McAllen could see no cavern ceiling, at least not when she looked directly upwards. The warm glow wasn't strong enough to hurt her eyes, but the haze obfuscated any detail or texture from the roof of the cabin. It's beautiful. I've got to show Tully. Wherever the hell Tully is. Tully! Tully, where are you? McAllen raced back out into the long hallway that was bordered by rows of wooden doors on each side. Tully. She sprinted down the length of the corridor, shouting his Tully, name. Tully, can you hear me? She ran the entire length Tully. and then started to turn back towards her own chamber when... McAllen, where are... There you are. Callan, have you seen these rooms? They're insane. There's priceless antique treasures lying around everywhere, and they don't even tie them down. Every one of them is worth a fortune. You could make a killing Tully, if Tully! You... You've got to come to my room. You've got to see this. It's amazing. Come on! McAllen grabbed Tully's hand and pulled him urgently back to her room to show him the window that overlooked the village. They both sat in the windowsill looking at the hundreds of people going about their business. My God, look at those people. Where did they get those clothes? They're, they're all so different. It's like going to a village people concert. Nice, Tully. <laughs> Isn't it amazing, though? All these people from different times, hell, different cultures, coming together to exchange ideas? I mean, think about it. What would Da Vinci do if he got the chance to use the internet? What would Galileo do if he had the tools of the Hubble telescope or could debate with Stephen Hawking? What whoa, if- whoa. Don't get too enamored of this life you're seeing. We don't know anything about those people down there. Sension made it seem like a lot of these guys may be here against their will. Sension lied to me. And never told me I was a clone. Well, I don't know. Just don't forget that we're behind enemy lines here. According to who? Evangeline has been nothing but nice to both of us. And that's saying a lot, considering that you've tried to steal half the stuff in your room. Well... Look, I didn't ask to come here for me. We're here because of Anton. That's not why I'm here. Tully reached over to grasp McAllen's hand gently. McAllen looked deeply into Tully's eyes. For sure he looked tired, but he gazed back reassuringly at McAllen. Steady. He's tired, but steady. She noticed the shadows under his eyes were moving and lengthening. In fact, all of the light surrounding both of them was shifting, and she instinctively looked upward outside her window and was amazed to see the light was changing colors. The ceiling of the cavern that had been constructed of warm yellow light was now slowly morphing into orange in the center, with intense streets of magenta and crimson radiating outward. And handsome. Did I forget handsome? McCallum reached her hand behind Tully's head to pull him closer to her. Their lips touched and melted together, and somehow without knowing or feeling, she was standing up, 
on her feet but higher, carried, being carried to the bed, on top of it, lips still touching, hands gripping tightly. She felt tugging, ripping, urgency, and then sweet melting again, melting, together. Several hours later. Penny for your thoughts. Penny for every time a girl has asked me that after sex. Come on! Well, look, I, I obviously have feelings towards you. I mean, we've been through a lot, and I think... Tully, you are very sweet and also very presumptuous. I meant, what are your thoughts about this here, Leviathan? Well, yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. You just... Uh-huh. Uh, so let's let's talk for a second. Uh, what do you see as our exit strategy out of here? What do you mean, exit strategy? I mean, let's not wear out our welcome. We're done here, right? I wanted to shut down the Star Stone so your grandmother and the other immortals won't get sick. You did it. You wanted to make sure Anton would be okay? You did it. What more is left? Let's head back to Alaska or New York and- Whoa, Tully, it might not be so simple. What do you mean? Look, this is really hard for me to talk about, mainly because I don't understand it myself, but something is really worrying me. What? Well, you weren't inside the Star Stone cave beside the crater, but when I saw the Star Stone, it was like calling to me. Like it was talking to me in a voice only I could hear. Well, that makes sense, right? I mean, from everything we know, the Starstone was only designed for Evangeline to be able to interact with. That was a security feature the aliens built into them, right? If you truly are Evangeline's clone, you should be able to have her ability. Why does that worry you? No, no, that isn't the part that worries me. You see, when I finally did touch the Starstone, when I communed with it, it was like a firestorm went off in my head. I was bombarded by voices that were shouting at me. It felt like I was being overloaded with information. It felt terrible. Isn't that just a function of that deadly signal that was killing you immortals? Those are the same symptoms that Anton and everyone else was describing whenever the signal hit them. No. No, Tully. You don't get it. I wasn't hearing other people's voices. I think I was hearing voices within the Starstone. That doesn't make sense. Whatever had gone wrong in that Starstone, it didn't... Wait. That's it. That's what's bothering me. What? What? There was nothing wrong with the Starstone. Everyone kept saying it was malfunctioning, but it was functioning perfectly. There was something decidedly premeditated about its nature. It was doing what it was supposed to be doing. Those voices, they had intention. So somebody wanted the Starstone to kill the immortals? Someone designed the Starstone to kill immortals. It was no fluke. Evangeline? She said she had nothing to do with the signal that was killing my people. Sweetie, people lie all the time. No, Evangeline wasn't lying. How do you know? Because I know, Tully. I heard her voice. It's the same voice I use when I'm telling the truth. I'd know if she was lying. Then it has to be Black Door. I don't know. <sighs> Great. And all we have is unanswered questions. No, Tully. We have a lot more than that. McAllen looked out the stone window of her bedchamber and saw that night had fallen on Leviathan City. The amber and scarlet tones of sunset that had burned across the ceiling of the Great Cavern earlier were now replaced with a deep cobalt blue that shimmered with silver wisps that danced like pale phantoms across the sky. McAllen had witnessed three stages of this stunning artificial sky, and she had yet to determine her favorite. What do you mean? We have all night, and you, you are all mine. Meanwhile, in a remote section of Leviathan, hundreds of feet below where McAllen and Tully lie in bed, Benu walked down a short corridor. His steps were quick and urgent. A deep scowl remained hidden under his white hood. He entered a small room off to the side that was filled with antiques that had not been touched for a long time. A Chinese man stood in the darkness against the far wall. Dr. Sweeney, 
I came as soon as you contacted me. Are you aware of recent events? I have heard the rumors. Is it really true? Is Evangeline's clone really here? Did Harlequin return to Leviathan? Unfortunately, the answer to all of your questions is yes. Amazing. We never predicted that the cloning efforts would be so successful. They won't succeed for long. Still, this is quite an achievement scientifically that- Please, try to restrain your endless admiration for all things scientific. Sension stole our best scientific minds. John, Teresa, and Amelia Orsall. They didn't even want to be part of the rebellion. Don't have too much admiration for their scientific achievement. I assure you, it was inspired at gunpoint. This will complicate things. Make our plan We more... stick to the plan. Too many pieces are now in place. We must move forward. I agree. We must free the two of them. I know. Time is running out. Do you really believe that Evangeline is right about them? A war is coming, my friend. We just need to make sure that we're on the right side of it. Immortality isn't particularly useful if you don't exist to enjoy it. And my daughter? I've given you my assurances that she'll be protected. Have you made contact with her? I know my daughter has received my last message. Almost all the pieces are in place. With her help, the Tibetan portal will soon be active. Excellent. The Black Door Group will rendezvous at Mount Qinglong and provide security and extraction. I'm still concerned that they may double-cross us. We have much more to be concerned about. We must remember. If Evangeline finds out what we're doing, she'll kill us both. And there'll be no redemption this time. You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi, for a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com, or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.